0: My name is Sharon Begley. I'm the senior health and science correspondent at Reuters and today's moderator. Our program, which is about an hour long, is a collaboration between the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health and Reuters. Today, we'll be discussing the implications of a case before the Supreme Court. Argued in March, King v. Burwell could impact millions of people who signed up for health insurance on the federal health care marketplace, which was established by the Affordable Care Act, also known as Obamacare. The court is expected to hand down its decision by the end of the month, and the decision could come as soon as tomorrow. Because a decision in favor of the administration would essentially be a decision in favor of the status quo, our discussion today will focus more on the implications if the decision goes against federal subsidies, in other words, in favor of the plaintiffs. Today's panelists, starting from my immediate right, are Catherine Baker, Chair of the Department of Health Policy and Management at Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. Next, we have John McDonough. Professor of the Practice of Public Health at the Harvard Chan School. And then Robert Blendon, Professor of Health Policy and Political Analysis at the Harvard Chan School and Harvard Kennedy School. Joining us remotely is Douglas Holtz Aiken, President of American Action Forum. Our program will include a Q&A from both our studio audience and our online, our, our online audience. And you can email questions to forum at hsph.org. Dot dot edu. You can also participate in a live chat that's happening on the website of the forum right now. You could say that the, the reason we're here today and the reason the case is before the Supreme Court is four simple words established by the state. For a little more background, um, let's take a look at this video from Reuters TV.
2: For the second time in five years, President Obama's signature health care law facing a life-or-death moment in the Supreme Court. The court's nine justices ruling on a legal challenge to the tax credit set up to help Americans pay their insurance premiums under Obamacare. Reuters Supreme Court editor Joan Biskupik.
3: This one goes to actually what could sound like an inconsequential part of the law, but has turned out to be quite momentous. A phrase in the law that says that only insurance purchased on exchanges established by the state would qualify for these tax credits and it turns out that most states did not establish their own exchanges so this would affect people in 37 different states who now buy insurance through a federal exchange
2: losing those tax credits could topple the entire law which now insures 10.2 million americans in a tuesday speech president obama called out the law's opponents
4: It it seems so cynical to want to take coverage away from millions of people and unravel what's now been woven into the fabric of
3: America. The first time such a challenge came up, it was decided on a 5-4 to vote with Chief Justice John Roberts, a conservative, swinging over with the four liberals to uphold the law. There's a chance he'll do it again.
2: If the court rules against it, individual states could still qualify by creating their own health care marketplaces, but few have made plans to do so. Court watchers say the decision is likely to come at the end of June.
0: So Kate, let me start with you. Um, The people most on the line here are, of course, those who live in the three dozen-ish states um, who purchased insurance on healthcare.gov. Are those the only ones who might be impacted, or do you foresee uh, effects beyond them as well?
3: I think there are several different groups that might be impacted by this ruling. First, of course, as you mentioned, are the people who are getting tax credits through the federally facilitated exchanges. And those are largely low-income people, but they're very different across a couple of different dimensions. They're very different participants in different states, different mix of age in different parts of the country, different health mix. So it's a really heterogeneous group of people. Most of the people participating in the exchanges are getting some subsidies, about 72%. 2% of their premiums are covered by those subsidies. So that group, were the premiums uh, to be unsubsidized, might choose not to or not be able to get insurance. If they're low enough income, they wouldn't be subject to a penalty because the insurance would be seen as unaffordable for them. But they're not the only group that would be affected. There are also other people who purchase insurance through the exchanges who don't get subsidized or people who purchase through the non-group market that's not part of the exchange whose premiums would also be affected because health insurance premiums are based on the average cost of the group of people who are covered. If the people who stop getting coverage because they lose credits are disproportionately younger, the pool that's left is going to be older and sicker, premiums are going to rise, and some of them may not purchase insurance anymore either. And then, of course, there are the taxpayers who pay for those premium subsidies. If the subsidies were to go away for a large share of states, that would lower the tax cost of the provision overall.
0: And to your point about being able to afford it in young and old, one would expect that if people lose their subsidies, the first ones who would likely say no thank you to their health insurance are those who are already healthy, which would leave de facto people who really desperately need their insurance, either right. are sicker
3: health insurance is most worthwhile for people who know they're going to have high health expenses. Um, Doug,
0: um, you were sanguine, actually, when we spoke um, before <laughs> this meeting about any uh, implications if the justices rule in favor of the plaintiffs against the administration. Talk to us, if you would, about the immediate timeline, by which I mean uh, the six months left in this year, and then possibly into 2016. What kind of uh, effects might we see?
4: Uh, sure. Uh, uh, most people expect the decision to be uh, somewhere at the end of June. So uh, say they put it out June 29th. Um, at that point, uh, the timeline looks like this uh, for insurers. Uh, they have to announce by July 1st whether they intend to participate in an individual market next year. So all of those insurers not knowing what is going to be present in terms of support for those uh, policies are likely to send out notices indicating that they could withdraw from the individual market. Uh, that's going to look like millions of cancellation notices, and that's going to raise the political heat on this considerably. Uh, the Supreme Court, for their part, will have both made the decision and quite likely delayed its implementation. It's typically stayed its decisions for 30 to 90 days. Uh, I'd expect, in this case, they'd go for the longer horizon, 90 days. Uh, that means that the money keeps flowing through the, the third quarter of 2015 for sure. Uh, our reading of the Affordable Care Act is that if they clearly have the statutory authority to pay Quarterly subsidies instead of monthly subsidies. So you could pay the fourth quarter of 2015 without any problem at all. That means the money keeps flowing through 2015. And this is all about what happens after. And that brings in the Congress and the president and a lot of politics. And that's what most of the fall of 2015 would be.
0: And, and as you said, the insurers are facing a really, really tight deadline. In fact, some of them have already submitted rate requests um, yeah. going basically on, on hope alone almost. Um, so how do you think the insurers well, I think might spare. <laughs> there you go. Um, how, how do you see and when do you see the insurers scrambling to uh, t- to deal with a decision in favor of the plaintiffs?
4: Uh, as you said, they have filed, uh, their products for 2016 and the, the premiums they intend to charge. Th- that's done. And all they can do is hold on in the aftermath of a decision for King in this case. Uh, they're at the moment trying to design products for 2017 and figure out how to price them. Uh, if there's a ruling for King, all bets are off on what kind of pools you'll have out there. Kate Baker was, was exactly right about this. State by state, it's going to be different. They have no idea who's going to drop out. How bad will be the adverse selection and the, the high cost uh, uh, beneficiaries? They don't know, so they, they're really in um, uh, quite frankly a, a panic over 2016 because there's nothing they can do but hold on, and and they're really nervous about 2017. It's an impossible situation to
3: plan for.
0: Sounds a lot of like a lot of fun being an insurer today. Um, so um, John Doug alluded to um, what. Might happen. Um, a lot of court watchers looking at how the decision might or might not come down talk about a fix. Um, Congress got us into this, again, the four little words established by the state. So Congress could just write a bill um, addressing anything that um, came down as a result of the decision, right?
5: Yes. Congress could deal with this very simply in a one page bill that modified those four words and the issue would go away. And that's the preferred response from the White House and from just about all the Democrats. And it's absolutely been ruled out and rejected by the Republican leaders in the Senate and the House, who have a set of plans that have been put forward. There have been a number of different members who have advanced legislation. It differs significantly, so there's not a consensus on the Republican side. There are some who are adamantly against any continuation of subsidies that relate from the Affordable Care Act, and some who say, we have to keep it going. Frankly, we have to keep it going at least past the 2006 federal elections, because a large number of the Republican senators come from states with these federal exchanges and would see immediate losses and political damage. But there's not real consensus yet. When the Supreme Court was holding its arguments in March, uh, there were many Republican leaders in the House and the Senate, including the budget, the Ways and Means Chair, Paul Ryan, who said, we will have a bill ready, we will even have a bill scored by the Congressional Budget Office before there's any decision. And we have not seen that. And I think that reflects the difficulty they are having coming to some agreement. Uh, There are some clear trends, though, in what we're seeing. There's a willingness to extend subsidies for the people who currently have them. But any new people coming in and buying coverage would be paying 100 percent themselves without any subsidies. And then there'd be a continuation of those subsidies, but at the cost of dismantling the key foundational elements of the Affordable Care Act. that is whether it's done through straight legislation, whether it's done through the so-called budget reconciliation process with expedited uh, process. It still ends up on the president's desk, and I think a veto of the Republican version is almost certainly to uh, to attract a veto.
0: Hmm. So let me just ask you briefly: the states mm-hmm. also, mm-hmm. in theory, um, again, as we said. Mm-hmm. 34-ish states um, might be in trouble here. Or I should say the people in the 34 states who bought insurance and are receiving subsidies um, might be in trouble here. Um, But there are lots of states um, who established their own exchanges. California is good. New York is good. Couldn't Texas also do this?
5: Well, they could. But again, like in Congress, there's diversity. So there are some states who are already, and the two most recently are Delaware and Pennsylvania, who are advancing and saying we want to set up our get ready to set up our own as quickly as possible? Uh, there are a group of states, some of whom had trouble with their state exchanges. So Oregon, New Mexico, Hawaii, uh, and uh, and oh, I'm having a Rick Perry moment. There's one more I'm forgetting. Um, <laughs> Uh, that that have been able to set up a a cooperative relationship with Health and Human Services that is kind of a scaled down exchange uh, from the state point of view, but could still qualify. So there are states, but in many of these states, particularly in the states with the largest numbers of uninsured, Texas, Florida, Georgia, North Carolina, there seems to be a distinct lack of political will to move forward and to say, hey, we don't want to embrace any part of Obamacare. This is Congress's problem, and it's going to be up to them to fix it. So, uh, so just assuming that the states can come in and do it themselves, even if they could, um, and it's not an easy thing to set up, uh, there are sharp political disagreements about how to proceed. And so I don't think it would be realistic to expect a uniform state response at all.
0: So. Bob, John has now um, helped us segue from policy to politics. How do you see a decision um, against the administration playing out, either nationally or at any state level? Um, voters, are voters going to punish someone who took away their subsidies?
6: So let me make three points, and the last one will answer that one. First is, I think we're going to be surprised. There are going to be two bills. There's going to be a Republican and a Democratic bill when it's all over. Uh, The bills will be so far apart, it'll look like you're at either side of the Atlantic. I'll explain (laughs) for a moment. The second reason, the reason why they are going to be so far apart is, and this is very hard for people to understand, particularly if you're not from the United States, we're entering primary season. Uh, all House members, all presidential candidates, a third of the Senate are, have to get the party's nomination. Uh, and what I'll explain uh, briefly is something called electoral opinion. It's not very polite to discuss it, uh, public opinion. But in reality, only 36% of the public voted in 2014. So every time you see a poll, 64% of the people are in the audience watching. They're not, they're not playing in this game. The primaries will have a subset. Uh, uh, of those 36 percent. And so if I'm running for any of those offices, that's where I am. And if we could just show a PowerPoint one second, I promise we're not going to fill this up. Okay, all you have to look at is the bottom of the top. So these are actual voters in 2014. What do Republicans want done with the bill? Uh, uh, Repeal it, replace it, scale it back. Democrats at the top love it, implement it, enlarge it. So now you're running in a primary. The primaries start this month, uh, essentially the campaigns. Where are the candidates going to be? They're going to be there. However, I'll say in a second the Republicans, and I'll show you in a minute, uh, will find that subsidies to somebody is popular. So there will have a bill which basically will say get rid of the mandates and then we will have subsidies. The Democrats will just fix the four words. So that's where we are. So uh, what is the dilemma? The dilemma is that both parties are going to think it's smart not to reach an agreement. And what I want to show you in a second is they're wrong. And so we could miss what would be a temporary agreement. The Republican bill will only carry subsidies through the election. There's no permanent fix. They'll just say, let's pretend this is a Middle East peace temporary agreement. Give us this just through the election. If we could just go to the next one a second. We'll just do this very quickly. So this, uh, this is how you feel about subsidies. Guess what? Republicans running in a primary are not against subsidies. They're against some people who get them, and they're against the bill. So they're going to find this $10 million to zero is not going to play well. There will be somebody in Iowa. Tears will be in your eyes. You will look at them and say, it's not fair. She works three jobs. She has six kids. How can she lose her subsidy? So they will not find it possible to get rid of subsidies. Here's the problem, and then I'll I'll quit in a second about why the parties are going to be wrong. Next slide, if we can. Uh, So uh, uh, and this, I have to uh, take some credit for an error. The polling that's going on has not been very helpful. It is what I call a uh, one-tail polling. It says, you get rid of the subsidies, should we continue them? Yeah. <laughs> Do it. Uh, there's no second option. So here you throw in a second option. Uh, Keep the law after the case. Let the states decide. Half the people move right over. Guess what? The half to move over Republicans are independents. So what's going to happen is both parties are going to think this is a win for them. We're not going to president's going to say, I'm going to veto it. Republicans are going to say, we're going to run on a compromise. Both of them will be wrong. They will not gain. They will lose. What's too bad is that we actually could reach a compromise through the election. And that's what people who care about this issue should work on: finding some interim compromise, which says, "Let the election settle this, but don't for 2015 and early 2016 take it away from everybody. Give them a cobra for a year. Settle this after the election."
0: Doug, I wanted to ask you about what seems to be a challenge of sort of squaring the circle. If Roughly 80% of the 6.4 million or so people whose subsidies could vanish as a result of a Supreme Court decision um, cannot afford individual health insurance. But the individual mandate remains, right? That's a, that's the key part of Obamacare. Um, can you see anything that the insurers might do, obviously with the consent of the administration, to perhaps go back to offering? A catastrophic plan, something that um, the ACA said no to. Um, but you know, currently, we have was it gold, silver, bronze plans. Could there be a copper right. plan in our future? Something that would make that would allow unsubsidized coverage to be affordable to more people.
4: Um, you know, in the end, there's the, the key fact that the administration has tremendous latitude in setting its so-called enforcement priorities, and so. While it cannot bless something as being illegal, it can simply not have the time or resources to investigate it and find out that it's illegal and should be banned. And so uh, you could easily imagine um, less rigorous enforcement of the individual mandate itself, uh, make it a lower enforcement priority at the IRS. You could easily imagine uh, products that um, had previously existed being put back into place under uh, an extension of the grandfather clause uh, for plans that, that are not ACA compliant. There is a lot of administrative wiggle room. Uh, none of that, I think, helps them politically. Those are exactly the same kind of actions that have maintained the political heat over the Affordable Care Act. But as a matter of uh, actions in a desperate situation, you can't rule any of it out.
0: Um, Kate, you also spoke to the affordability question and how for some people, if it's not affordable, then they're, they're not under the individual mandate. Could you just expand a little bit on that? Do we have any idea how many people that might be and, again, play out how that might affect the individual market and the risk
3: pooling that we now have? Sure. And of course, it very much depends, as John was suggesting, on how the states react. There are potentially about six and a half million people receiving credit through federally facilitated marketplaces. Some of those could continue to receive credits if states make accommodations, either by having their own exchanges or by changing uh, the way that they're describing their exchanges. If none of those states made any changes and all of those people were no longer receiving credits, I think people estimate that a good portion of them would be unlikely to purchase insurance after the loss of those credits, and then there are additional couple million people who are not subsidized, who might not be able to afford insurance anymore because premiums rose sufficiently, that they were now too large a share of their income. So that there's something like $25 billion at stake in terms of the subsidy amounts for premiums and the cost-sharing subsidies. Um, John. Can I add something to
4: that? Please do. So I think it's important to recognize that again, the. The plain reading of the law is at issue here. We understand that. But a plain reading of the law says the state exchange had to be set up before 2014. So in many cases, the states are going to say there's nothing we can do. And indeed, in some of these states, Ohio, for example, there's a constitutional amendment against setting up a state exchange. So I, at least, am not optimistic that you can rely on the states to, to solve the aftermath of the decision for king.
0: So I did not plant that comment, but I would like indeed to turn to what the states, um, or at least some of the states, might do. Um, So John, you alluded earlier to um, some of the most important states, at least in terms of the number of people who currently receive subsidies for their Obamacare plans um, and who have large numbers of uninsured. Um, You mentioned uh, North Carolina and Florida. both states, uh, neither of which are Louisiana or Texas, um, but lots of people um, and somewhat divided politically. Um, I wonder if you could look in your crystal ball and tell us what you think could happen, um, and just what the uh, the legal possibilities are. As as Doug just said, the law says you know the 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 time has passed. You can't set up an exchange. What might be possible at the state level, both politically if possible, and um, just in terms of the, the law as it exists.
5: So where there is uh, political opposition, lack of support to do anything um, in states such as Texas and Florida, North Carolina, Georgia, some of the others, then the likelihood of anything going on there to be helpful to those folks in that state is, I would say, almost off the radar screen. Um, And then the question is other states where there may be some interest in finding some accommodation. Then the question is, in some of those states, there's actually been constitutional amendments passed to prohibit the legislature from moving forward and the governor to do anything. So if those don't exist and there is some political desire to do it, then there may be some options. Uh, The Obama administration has been pretty assertive, saying there's nothing that they can do differently than what is already out there. Part of that may be strategic in terms of not giving the Supreme Court justices a sense that there's an easy out, and they can rule for the plaintiffs and the administration can take care of it. And some of it, there may in fact be some things up their sleeves that they just haven't disclosed at this point we'll have to see. Uh, There's been no dialogue or conversation going on anywhere in the administration indicating that they're looking for a plan B. So I'd say it's a really unsettled piece. And the main focus of action will will not be in the states as a whole, but will be very much in Congress and in Washington D.C.
0: And, and I want to talk uh, turn to Bob in a second about the states as well. But um, John, you had also uh, raised the possibility of a reconciliation bill. If you could explain a little bit more okay. about what that might offer.
5: So reconciliation is just an expedited way for a bill to go through Congress, so it's not subject to a filibuster. It only needs 51 votes. It's a time-limited debate. It's also only restricted to things that have a direct impact on the federal budget. But it is a way to get something through Congress. But it then ends up on the president's desk as a bill, and it has to be signed or not signed or vetoed. And if the Republicans use reconciliation to fast track a bill through Congress, it still ends up on the president's desk and it is still likely to attract a veto. So it is not for people who are hoping to find this as a way to have an alternative to the ACA, a particularly promising path, at least um, through 2016.
0: So sorry, um, Bob, I lied. I'm instead going to ask you about the political ramifications of something that John just um, uh, outlined. Who takes the hit for that?
6: So uh, I'm a believer that there's about to be a a big mistake uh, called in that the Republicans will take this big hit because people lose coverage. I believe if they have a proposal to continue coverage and they get on the air every day and say we will meet with the president and compromise and the president just says I'm going to veto, I'm going to veto, he's going to find that he has a split country. So my concern is that the political people reach some temporary agreement to let this play out through the election where the losers are not people who had the coverage. And so, but I can tell you at a Democratic retreat, hold tight, support the president, our bill is popular, they'll look awful. At the Republican retreat is, we have an alternative, it'll be great, our people will mobilize around it, we're going to call the president as never cooperating. And at the end of the day, we're going to have 10 million people without subsidies. But there is a possibility, but the agreement has to be let let's get through the election. I really view this like a Middle East peace process. Let's just get through the next year uh, and then allow the election, including states. This will be a big issue in many states, but it can't be an issue before November 2016. So the question is, can you allow subsidies to go on in some form to be settled in states by elections, to be settled nationally?
5: And it's not clear to me how that's going to play out. John? And there's And the one critical element of that decision, which is not readily apparent, but highly important, is if subsidies go on, do you allow new people to enroll? Because if you don't, then you start to see the degradation of the risk pool that will make premiums go up. And you start to see it begin to fall apart at the seams.
3: And about half of the people who enrolled in 2015 were, in fact, new entrants into the exchanges. So that would have a direct effect on any new entrants in 2016. And I think much more hidden is the indirect effect on other people whose premiums go up. They're less readily identifiable than people who lose their credits, but it may have a profound effect on their ability to purchase affordable insurance as well.
1: Mm
0: -hmm. That's right. So Kate, let's keep talking about some of those people. Um, As as Bob has pointed out, they uh, might not get to the polls. Every two years, or perhaps even every four years, Reuters polling has shown that there's widespread, deep, immense ignorance that that this case even exists, um, and even people who will not be able to afford their health insurance, their Obamacare insurance, um, if things go, if the decision goes a certain way, are unaware of it. Um, but one would think that one uh, group of people who are aware of it are. Healthcare providers, especially hospitals, when the law was going through, the hospital associations kicked in hundreds of billions of dollars in reimbursement cuts because they expected all these great new paying patients to show up. Right? Um, I just wondered if you could put on your politics hat and maybe talk a little bit about: um, a) Will the providers take a significant hit if subsidies go away in the three dozen states? And do they have any clout? I mean, are they, you know, golfing with their friendly North Carolina assemblymen and saying, "Get the subsidies back"?
3: First of all, my economist hat is permanently welded on my head, so I can't take it off and put on my my other hats. Uh, But I would note that Part of the reason I think the broader stakeholder community in the healthcare sector was supportive of the expansion is because of the billions of dollars and millions of people who were entering into the paying healthcare system. So when you think about who bears the cost of utilization that isn't covered by insurance, it is largely or at least partly the providers who would be delivering care anyway and probably less efficiently than if somebody had health insurance. That said, I don't think we can think of this as uh, an expansion of insurance. As saving money for the system. It provides health care more efficiently. It provides redistribution to people who might not otherwise be able to afford care. But in general, it costs more money to deliver more care. All right, okay. Um John, let me ask you
0: one more thing. Um, so of course, the House uh, Repealed the ACA 40 sometimes, I think. I think Um, it's over 55. Is it over? Okay, I'm sorry, I lost (laughs) count. (laughs) Um, um, And uh, an ACA law has reached the Supreme Court now for the second time. Um, So, will this be the end of it, or are there still cases kicking around in the lower courts?
5: Well, there are cases kicking around. Most of them don't have major impact on the law as a whole. There's one in particular that is drawing some attention and the impact of an unfavorable decision in that case, which is still down at the district court level, so a long way to go, would be to eliminate the cost-sharing subsidies for people in all of the exchanges, state and federal. Uh, those folks are between uh, 138 and 250% of the federal poverty, so about 15 to $30,000. Um, uh, that had just its first hearing in the district court Uh, a a few weeks ago, and uh, some were surprised that the judge was far more interested in that complaint than I think people had anticipated. So if there's one on the horizon, I think that's it. There are other continuing cases around contraceptive coverage and other kinds of rules that are significant but are not kind of life-threatening to the structure of the ACA as a whole.
0: Mm-hmm. I want to get to questions um, in just a minute. I want to ask one final question of our panelists. Um, Doug, let me go back to you. Um, if the justices rule in favor of the plaintiffs against subsidies and the federally facilitated marketplace states, is that, is, and there's no fix, as we've been discussing, is, does that gut Obamacare? Is there any significant element of it that is left standing?
4: Uh, I do think it's a big blow to the the coverage expansions. There's no doubt about it. There was a lot more to the Affordable Care Act than just coverage expansions through the exchanges. You still have the Medicaid expansions, which were uh, a bulk of the enrollment increases in in the United States and a big um, impact on the uninsured. Uh, There are uh, a a host of uh, pieces of the regulatory regime which would still be in place, medical loss ratios. Uh, There's a, a vast infrastructure for delivery system reform that will remain in place. And and some of those significant things are, are what's going to go on in payment systems in other parts of the federal health programs, notably Medicare. So uh, it is by far uh, not a repeal of the Affordable Care Act, that's for sure.
0: Let me just go down quickly from the far end. Um, Bob, can the, the president, Leave the White House in January 2017 if this happens and still be proud that he has reformed health care in this
6: country? Uh, so, if it looks like it's falling apart and there's uh, this will turn out to be one of the major issues in the campaign. So, he really ha- finds himself as a Democratic presidential cheerleader here. Uh, If his candidate wins, whoever that is is going to say, I'm going to fix this and we're going to go on. But he's going to be watching with the opponent, saying every single day on television, this was a mistake and we're going to dramatically change it. If it turns out to go the other way, it's going to be a piece of history that will not look the way it was when it was Mm -hmm. enacted. So the election matters.
0: John quickly death blow or a lot of the ACA enough of the ACA remains.
5: So, uh, so the uh, Affordable Care Act has ten titles. Um, all of the things that we're talking about here are just in title one. So there are eight other significant titles, including the Medicaid expansion, which is covering a significant number of people, even with the non-participating states. Uh, Title III is massive changes to Medicare and to the uh, medical care delivery system that are really starting to take root in some important and impressive ways. Accountable care organizations, the uh, penalties on hospitals with high rates of readmissions and hospital-acquired conditions. So there's a lot more in the House of the ACA that stands. Uh, this is a fundamental blow to one of the fundamental features of it in terms of uh, the folks who don't qualify for Medicaid but have income that still makes them vulnerable. So, uh, but, uh, but I agree with Bob. Right now, the presidential election, Obamacare is there, but it's just kind of hanging like a picture site. It's not really a fundamental driver uh, an adverse decision to the government makes this a fundamental issue in the 2016 campaign. Um, and a lot of people will be voting based on this issue, which will not be the case right now.
0: So, Kate, same question. No subsidies in FFM states? Does enough of the ACA remain to be a, you know, considerable
3: accomplishment? I agree with my colleagues that there are so many different components of the law that affect the healthcare care system. I wouldn't underestimate the degree to which this component has system level ramifications, though. So I think that we would expect an absence of subsidies to affect lots of aspects of healthcare delivery. OK, great. Um, let's take questions starting with
0: our online audience, Lisa.
1: Thank you, everyone, and uh, we do have a live chat going on, so I just want to encourage everyone to go on there. Some of these questions cover terrain we've already talked about, but these are the questions that have come in, so I just want to share them. Uh, The existing subsidies have incentivized healthy people to buy insurance, bringing down premiums due to an increased sharing of the health burden. If the SCOTUS rules in favor of King, are healthy people in states without subsidies likely to stop buying insurance? And what impact would that have on the individual health insurance
3: market? Kate, you serve address. I want to take another crack. Uh, Yes, just to reiterate, I do think that that would uh, the absence of subsidies would very much affect risk pooling. People make a decision about whether to purchase insurance based on what income they have available, how much the insurance costs, and what benefit they think they'll get out of the insurance in terms of the health care that they might need. When the is not there, it becomes a better proposition for people who are sicker than it is for people who are healthy. And the subsidy and the mandate really work hand in hand to generate that risk pooling of the sick and the healthy. The absence of the subsidy might lead to serious degeneration of that pooling.
0: But let's not forget that you will still have mothers telling their 27-year-old healthy kids to buy insurance. Um, <laughs> Lisa. So, <laughs> so another, another f- online
3: question? Yes, well, another
1: follow-up question to that. Uh, someone had asked if it was reasonable to expect people who were previously receiving the subsidies to finance their own coverage without them. So I think that that's a question that will remain to be seen. Um, yes. Um, Here's another question. I saw an article in the Huffington Post yesterday that said more than seven in 10 people have heard nothing at all or only a little about King versus Burwell, and that those who say they've heard nothing outnumber those who have heard something by 2 to 1. This gets to some of the polling. What do you think are the implications of this lack of awareness among Americans should the case prevail? Won't it backfire on the Republicans when millions of people are suddenly without coverage and seemingly taken by surprise? Bob, you've looked at that.
6: Uh, th- so it, it, it's correct that we're having a surreal discussion here. Most people have no idea what we're talking about. I mean, it's, it, they just don't follow that uh, uh, for that. Uh, what, when millions of people are without coverage, this will become front page. People will pay a lot of attention. The difference is, which people are having trouble with, there will be a Republican option. They will be on television, and they will say, we have a vehicle for doing this. Change the bill we hate. And the person who can't follow this is going to say, but they have a bill that would keep subsidies going. And she has the president has a bill. So it's not at all going to be clear. And that's what really worries me. The idea of blaming a party works well when the other party sits there like this and there's no proposal. But if there are two proposals, it's very hard to politically sort out. And, for, and that's going to be there. But everybody's going to see, as John says, it's going to push it right in the presidential election. But it's not going to be clear. Uh, who is most to blame the president for not compromising or the republicans for just not adding the four words back
0: um we can take questions in our studio audience as well if you have one just please raise your hand and the microphone will come to you um, and while we're waiting for anyone to get their question together um lisa did we have anything from did i do see a question Great. back here
3: so Thanks. Um, Dr. Baker, if we look at some of the Republican proposals that would elongate um, subsidies, uh, but not allow new people to receive subsidies, and would repeal the individual mandate, about how long can we expect before this sort of death spiral kicks in, and will we see premium increases right before the November elections? So that's a, a great question, and one that's very difficult to answer. And I don't know if Doug would also have a view on that. It very much depends on how long the tail is for people to be able to continue to purchase subsidized insurance and what new entrants might look like in terms of their health risk profiles relative to people who are already in those markets. Insurance premiums are set annually, so you wouldn't expect it to take all that long for premiums to adjust to a change in the pool. I would imagine that after just a cycle or two, premiums would look very different if new entrants who were sicker were, if the new entrants were disproportionately sicker.
0: Um, Doug, you've you've addressed it. Could you take a crack at that question too? Again, it's sort of a timeline how quickly we'd see some of this come down.
4: Uh, Sure. So uh, first on the the response, I agree with Kate. Um, Insurers respond quite quickly. In fact, this year we've seen some fairly sharp premium increases in some of the exchange plans. That reflects the fact that this is a a, a much more expensive and sicker population than they anticipated at the outset, despite the enrollment of the young invincible. So uh, it'll happen fast. Uh, I think the second thing is to um, just really point out that uh, we don't know if we went down that path, that particular policy prescription, what the influx would look like. And I'll, I'll agree with Kate on that. But I'd emphasize that I don't think that's the most likely outcome. Uh, that there is the formulation in one bill by Senator Johnson of Wisconsin, but it's far from obvious that will be the Republican response. Uh, my reading of what's going on in Capitol Hill right now is that uh, they are trying to settle on a single uh, counterproposal, and, that, and that's hard. Uh, I'll point out Democrats didn't settle on a single health care uh, reform until they had to. Um, and, and the Republicans are exactly in the same position. But, but they will uh, respond with something, and it's more likely that the place still focuses focus is not a new entrance, but on how much can they get in the way of insurance reforms, individual mandates, things like that, and essential health benefits. And they will also try as much as they can to tap into what uh, Bob Lunderman mentioned about uh, giving states options and and the traditional Republican federalism. And I think those are things to look for more than new entrants versus not.
0: If there are no more questions in the room, shall we go back to an online question?
1: Sure, we can take a few more. This is a question from our live chat. I think the ACA is a mechanism to expand health insurance coverage, especially for the poor. But is it more complicated to manage due to multiple players in the market? Is it not good to consider national coverage of health insurance?
0: So single-payer National Plan Canada. Who wants to take a crack at that? Go for it. It
5: would be simpler. uh, And some people would consider it very advantageous. Others would consider it very disadvantageous. I can tell you I was working in the Senate between 2008 and 2010 when it was being written. And there is zero chance that a single payer bill could have gotten through Congress in 2009 and 10. Just inconceivable. Uh, The law that got through is probably the most progressive law that was possible in Congress, and would be absolutely impossible to get anything even close to that in the current environment. So whatever you think about it in terms of its policy value, it was a political non-starter. Uh, and if people had, like my boss, Senator Kennedy, had pushed for that, nothing would have happened.
3: And certainly one wants to think about the effects of different insurance systems on coverage and administrative burdens and the like, but also on implications for innovation, the types of coverage that's offered, the price of services, and there's a hope that market competition could drive both more innovative insurance plans and higher value care delivery. And I would want to think carefully about the implications there as well.
0: Any questions um, in the studio? Let's try our online.
1: Okay, this is more of a legal question, but I think we can consider it. (laughs) Given that this case arose through the interpretation of four words within a 900-page law, is there potential that it may set a precedent for re-readings of other controversial pieces of legislation?
0: Who's brave enough to take
1: that,
0: John? I'll go ahead. ahead,
4: ahead. My understanding of this um, is uh, that this is, in fact, a case of administrative law. Uh, And so the first uh, um, test is a plain reading of the legislative text. Is it clear what it says? If the answer is yes, then you're done. Uh, And indeed, that's what the Supreme Court is deciding right now. If it's not clear what it says, then you can move to rulemaking, as the IRS did, and interpret the intent of Congress and decide to pass out a subseason in the Federal Exchange. Uh, but the test here is is it clear and if it's clear intent doesn't matter and you would never go back and reinterpret decisions on old cases on on those grounds on the
5: yes i i I think doug is absolutely right and i think though there are other things to keep in mind which is that if there is a ruling for the plaintiffs um, many of the justices including some of the justices on the conservative side would be doing damage to some of the significant precedents that they have supported many times in the past, including, and I'm, I'm quoting Antonin Scalia, not from an opinion, but from a text he wrote, quote, interpretation always depends on context. Context always includes evident purpose. And evident purpose always includes effectiveness. So I mean, there, there's, there are many, many examples where the justices have said, you never just take a few words in isolation. You always look at context. So that's number one. But the other thing is also there's a decision that goes back to the early 1980s called the Penhurst decision. And basically what that ruling, that decision said was that states must have ample and clear warning of the consequences of new laws that would affect them. And that does not include, quote, surprising states. I think it's fair to say that at least 35 or 36 of the 37 states are mighty surprised that they're in this position. And there's a long <laughs> paper trail that indicates that they had no idea when they opted for the federal exchange. So the Supreme Court, if they do go uh, for the plaintiffs, they're going to be doing side. They're gonna have some explaining to do unless they repeat what they did in Bush v. Gore and say, this accounts for nothing in terms of a precedent now or in the future.
4: Yeah, can, can I add on to that? I think that's actually very interesting. Right? You know, People are always looking for what's the wiggle room for the Supreme Court here, right? It sounds like it's just a black and white case and they have no wiggle room. So wiggle room number one is they make a decision and say this never applies to anything ever again. Thank you very much. The second possibility that's been raised is it's not clear what the scope of this decision is. Uh, you could argue the scope is as, as, as tiny as the four plaintiffs. Yes, King King uh, wins, and those four plaintiffs cannot get subsidies in the federal exchange. <laughs> or, you could argue, or you could argue it's it's 37 states, the broadest interpretation. And there are numbers in between, depending on states that tried to start up an exchange and failed and then went to the federal government. One way for the Supreme Court to buy time and thus not supply the states would be to say, yeah, we rule for King. We're sending it down to lower court to let them decide the appropriate scope. That would take a year. And uh, and, and essentially put off a lot of this. Um, so th- those are the kinds of things to look for when the decision comes out. Not just what's the top line ruling, but what's the appropriate scope, what's the length of the stay, things like that. That's right.
0: That's very helpful, especially if the decision comes down tomorrow, and yes. uh, we'll <laughs> all keep that in mind. Yeah. Um, we are reaching the end of our allotted time. It went as always, much more quickly than we expected. (laughs) I wonder if I could ask um, all of our um, wonderful panelists for some concluding thoughts. If you can offer a takeaway um, uh, uh, of any sort that you like, if you would like to offer um, prescriptions to our legislators, if you would like to tell us what to look out for in the actual decision whenever it may come, just sort of bring us home here. And Doug, let me um, start with you.
4: Well, I've told you what to look out for. I guess uh, the thing I would have you look out for on the on the political front is uh, there will be a period of standoff. Um, it, it is the Republicans' intense desire to have provided an alternative. Uh, they will send it through on whatever terms they need, and they might use reconciliation. It will get to the president's desk. Uh, he will veto it. He will be standing up saying we need a one-page fix, and there will be the standoff, and it will be the politics of the standoff that will determine health policy in 2016, 17 and and somewhat beyond. And so uh, for all you interested political watchers, that's the key moment.
3: Kate, what do you say? Uh, I would urge us to think not just about the top line numbers of the millions of people who might lose credits and the billions of dollars of credits at stake, but also about the distributional implications for different people in different states, of different age, of different health conditions, and for the system level ramifications for risk pooling for everyone who participates in a non-group insurance pool. John,
5: I think it's important for us to dwell and reflect on the human impact of this. If it in fact goes for the plaintiffs, there were fifty-five friend of the court briefs that were filed: twenty-one for the plaintiffs, thirty-four for the government. Uh, there's one uh, which I which I co-signed, which was introduced by the twenty-two of the deans of schools of public health from across the United States, and it was based on the research of our colleague, Ben Summers, uh, looking at the actual impact on saving lives from the Massachusetts Health Reform Experiment that I have not seen challenged in any way. Uh, And the estimate from that amicus brief from the deans is that if the law passes and up to more than 8 million people lose their health insurance, that that will result in about 9,800 people dying. Per year in the United States, who otherwise would not have died, and I think it's important to keep that in mind as we go through a lot of the uh, 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 political and legal and economic and other kinds of considerations. That there are very much real human lives at stake here in this decision.
0: Yeah. No. The discussion can get so wonky, but absolutely, there are people who um, you know will not be able to access the health care that they have that they desperately need. Um, Bob, some concluding thoughts or prescriptions?
6: Yeah. Well, both between sort of John and and Doug, there's a very small possibility we could do something that has been very difficult in this country in the last five years is reach any agreement, on a compromise, Uh, and so we cannot do a trade bill this week which there was more agreement. At the same time, it's important to realize that you could do a Cobra bill that would carry these people through the election, that would not preset what the future would really look like. And it's not just Republicans who will keep that from happening. And so I I follow a world where Democrats, the president vetoes is the first word out of their mouths, uh, as distinct from what does it take to get the $10 here covered for a year and then settle this in the next election. So my appeal is to get away from the veto pens and the this pen and I'm going to lie down in the street pen uh, and say there's a chance to move this in an interim basis so we can settle this without the people that John are talking about waking up six months from now with no coverage. But that requires a degree of political skill that we have not seen in this country in the last years.
0: From your lips to John Boehner's and Mitch McConnell's ears. Um,
6: That's my problem.
0: (laughs) (laughs) You have been a wonderful audience. The conversation continues at the forum's website, um, forumhspsh.org. Thank you again.
1: This has been a production of The Forum at
0: Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. You can find the complete video of this event and post your comments at www.forumhsph.org. Thank you for sharing The Forum.